Good morning, Bethel. Okay, well, surprise, surprise, the four-week series turned into five. Okay, I'm going to get a reputation here, I think. Um, but this is just such a uh, rich passage, and uh, we didn't get to so much of the motivational grace. Um, so let me back up for a second. If you're visiting, um, we have been in the book of Luke for a while, um, but with a few planned breaks for some shorter series, shorter series that sometimes grow as they get started. Um, so it was initially going to be a four-week series, now it's five, but um, wrestling with the issues of, of resting spiritually, um, running spiritually, and how those two things are actually both true in the Christian life, and yet there's a tension there that sometimes we really wrestle with what that looks like. And so we started with Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then in Hebrews, you have language like this, let us strive to enter that rest. And those are not contradictory things, those are complementary truths. And actually, endured. fix your eyes on him so that you can run with endurance. Do you see how that endurance piece is so central to where he goes with this? In fact, you might want to underline each time you see the word endure or endurance because it gets repeated quite a few times. So let's look at it here. Consider Jesus. First, first point, we're called to run this race. We know we need help to do that. It's, it's a marathon. It's long. It's hard. We go through some really tough patches. What do we do when we are coasting, when we are struggling, when we are facing hard obstacles to that endurance? Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider Jesus. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, but instead endure. And then in verse 4, it says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So, first point here, if you're following along in the outline, consider Jesus. If you're going to run with endurance, we, you and I, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. What does it look like to fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, to consider him. He's getting more specific here. To ponder, consider his life and his death. To meditate on Jesus. And then the logic is actually pretty simple, and it's incredibly unsentimental. So you and I, we're tempted to slow down, grow weary, lose heart. That's dangerous. The drift is dangerous. Don't do it. Keep running. The race is set before you. Fix your eyes on the one who has suffered this incredible amount of hostility by sinners against himself. Because when you consider him, you fix your eyes on him, you focus on him, and Consider all that he went through for us. Our suffering and trials will be nothing in comparison to his. You and I, we haven't resisted to the point of shedding any blood. Pretty unsentimental. <laughs> I think there's two, at least two important implications here in these verses. The, the logic is really simple. It's just a, the point is just very much on the surface of things. But there's some interesting implications here. I think, one, this is a serious expectations calibration moment. We're getting recalibrated here as far as our expectations are going. This one's going to hurt our pride. God is saying that our pain tolerance is, is pretty low. 
He's saying, you haven't really suffered that much. And he's speaking to people who have suffered. Remember the confiscation of their property, end of chapter 10. He's not just talking to the suburbs here, okay? He's talking to everybody. So he's saying, you really haven't suffered that much. That hurts our pride, okay? But it's a loving reorientation, and it's intended to strengthen us. It's not intended to shame us and backhand us. It's intended to strengthen us, okay? Because when you and I suffer, what happens? Think about a time in your life when you have suffered. Maybe it's right now. We sometimes want to have a pity party and have people come in and stroke our ego. We want the praise that belongs to the martyr, even if we haven't suffered all that much, relatively speaking. We want others to see our sufferings and for them to acknowledge them as great and to give us their praise and their reverential pity. And instead of that, what we really need more than that is to come and recalibrate our expectations. We need God to do that regarding what hard is, what struggle is, what painful is. We need God to define those terms and shape us. Okay, see, other people have actually done this for you probably. You've suffered, and when you were suffering, you thought of somebody, maybe it was your grandparent, maybe it was someone that you knew, maybe some biography that you read, some friend, You think of someone you know, and then you kind of straighten up and press on, right? You're like, well, man, what I'm dealing with is nothing compared to so-and-so. On the other hand, if someone who knows no suffering comes in and says something like this, (laughs) you might have some choice words for that individual, at least in your mind, right? It's like Job's friends. Thanks a lot, but... There's the door. Don't let, the, don't let it hit you in the butt on the way out. Okay? But if anybody has the right to say this, it's God. And not just by mere sheer authority, divine authority, but rather this is the God who took on flesh and blood and suffered for you and me more than we can imagine. Amen. Jesus is the ultimate person to consider so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. So that's the first implication. We need our expectations recalibrated as far as what's normal, what's painful, what's hard. And then secondly, another implication is, I think this is a call to get our eyes and our consideration in the right place. Okay, so Jesus is our trailblazer. He endured so much more than any of what we might suffer. Whatever we endure will hardly hold a candle to his suffering. And when we see that, we will not grow weary and lose heart. Okay? If our eyes are fixed on him, then our suffering and our pain will pale in comparison. But if our eyes are fixed on our suffering, if as we try to run, our eyes are fixed on our suffering, then what happens? Our suffering looms really large. Jesus gets squeezed out to the peripheral vision at best, And we will grow weary and faint-hearted. So if we consider what he endured, if we fix our eyes on him, then we are going to see that we have a high priest that suffered incredibly, and he's a high priest who is now completely able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's experienced more than we ever will see. So if we run with our eyes fixed on him, 
considering what he suffered, our suffering is going to be relativized. It's going to come down to size, and we're not going to grow weary and lose heart. We also see that he went through all of that, and he is exalted. He sat down at the right hand. And humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Just as certainly as he was exalted, you go through the humiliation and the humbling and the pain and the suffering of this life and trust like he trusted, running a race of faith, and you will be exalted. You will be lifted up. Hang in there, okay? So, we all grow weary, lose heart, don't we? We probably on a daily or at least a weekly basis. Aren't you glad that our God knew that it would happen and he gave us grace upon grace? And this is certainly not the only place, but certainly grace upon grace here in Hebrews 12 to keep us, to keep us on the path, to keep us from stumbling, to keep us from veering off into the ditch. So there's more of that grace in verses 5 to 11. Let's look at that. So don't forget that fatherly love hurts. Verses 5 to 11. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't, don't deal with it flippantly. Don't pass it off. Don't treat it lightly. Don't faint when you're reproved by him because those whom he loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives, quoting Proverbs chapter 3. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't good. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There is a lot in those verses. We're not going to try to turn over every rock this morning. There's two main points, and they have implications for how we view sufferings. Okay, so verses 5 to 8, we're told that the suffering, the trials, the hardship that we face is evidence of... And it's actually an expression of God's love. Counterintuitive, that challenges our faith. Really, it's love? God hurts the ones he loves? Sure doesn't feel like love. Wish you would love me a little less. Careful, that's really close to regarding lightly the discipline of the Lord. In verses 12, 9 to 11, we're told that our suffering has good purposes. It's for our good. Really? It's for our good. Sure doesn't feel like it. Wish there was a little less bad in this good. The bad's obvious. The good I don't always see. Okay, but listen, if we don't get this, these verses, what he is saying here, if we don't believe this, what's going to happen when we suffer is we're gonna re- we are going to resist and repel and stiffen up toward God when we suffer. Just like children who do that when their parents discipline them and they get no's when they don't want a no. But if we get this, if we grasp this by faith, 
We're going to receive his discipline. We'll talk about what that is. We're going to receive the hardship, the suffering, meekly, in faith. We're going to consider it pure joy because we know God's doing things here. It's for our good. So instead of being beaten down by it, growing weary and losing heart, we're going to trust him and see that this is his love and it's got loving purpose. Because if we don't see this, we are going to grow weary, we're going to lose heart, we're going to drift, and we're not going to run with endurance. So this is all toward the end of helping us run with endurance. So this is really important. Let's ponder it a bit with some illustrations, okay? I've given the illustration before a while ago about corn and its roots. I think I've checked this with a few farmers that it's true. Um, But let me use it again with specific connection to this passage. If corn has it too easy in early growth, like as in too much rain, the roots will actually grow really shallow, and if a big storm comes with enough wind, the whole crop can be wiped out. However, if on the other hand there's some toughness, some challenge in the time of its early growth, the roots will actually form a corkscrew and drive down to the water table. Then when the hard winds blow, what happens? The crop will remain steadfast. Now here's where I want to apply it particularly to this text. If a cornstalk could talk, if a cornstalk could feel, what might it say to God or to the farmer about the tough and dry weather? God, I am so thirsty. Don't you love me? I need water to survive. You know that. You made me. Can you send some rain or some irrigation, farmer? so that this burning thirst will be quenched? He might, if, you know, if it was that really nice, like lots of rain scenario, he might just think, woohoo, love how this farmer loves me. It could be dangerous. But the wise and loving God or farmer will say, no, not yet. I'm going to withhold from you and not answer your request yet precisely because I do love you. Or, let's go with another example of personifying inanimate objects. Um, Let's say that soil could feel and talk. The soil wants to host some, you know, awesome growth and bear some sweet fruit and yeah, absolutely. What soil wouldn't? Okay? But let's say this soil is hard and rocky. It's got some nasty weeds and thorns growing in. It's overly acidic, maybe. And there's some stumps in this plot of ground. So the farmer comes along with his plow. I mean, have you ever seen the tines on that rototiller thing? That looks really painful. It's enough to make you cringe. Run away if soil had legs, okay? And just hitting the top inch or two would be painful enough. But if that's all the farmer did, it really wouldn't do justice to that soil. So that soil needs some deep work, deep digging, deep turning over, sometimes six, eight, ten inches. Rocks need to be dislodged and removed. Oh, hey, you're leaving me with big holes. Root systems of weeds and thorns need to be pulled up and just burn, taken away and burn. Feels like you're taking away some of my stability and security. 
Okay, so you get the point. Or you get the idea. Here's the point. 12.11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So don't regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. Don't faint. Don't lose heart when you're reproved by him. Don't resent the trials. Don't joke about them. Oh, this is love. Hey, I wish he would love me a little less. Okay? His discipline is a loving thing. It's for our good. It's so that, like this text says, so that we will share in his holiness, which is pretty important if verse 14 is true, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you want some holiness if that's true? Do you want the Lord to change you? Then that doesn't come easy. It's painful. Now, we need to make sure that we understand what the writer is saying about this, this term discipline, okay? What do you think of when you hear the word discipline? Do you think punishment? Okay. If you do, like I did for a long time, that is actually dangerous as far as understanding this text because that's reductionistic. It's too narrow. It includes that, but it's broader than that. Okay, so you've got to understand this. There are two senses in which the word discipline is used, both biblically as well as in our day, okay, which is nice. <laughs> discipline as punishment, okay, so you get punished or disciplined when you do something wrong, whether at work or as a child or whatever, but also discipline as training. You discipline yourself when you're preparing for a marathon, okay, so you could even explain the two as preventative and therapeutic medicine, okay? Which is it here? It's both. Okay, this term actually is really interesting. Um, this is the same term that's used in Ephesians 4. Fathers, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the... Translations differ. The training or the discipline and instruction... It's, it's training. It's a broad word. It's not just punishment. It's all that a, a parent does to raise and train and correct and teach and reprove a child. It, it includes the punishment, but it's bigger than that. It's broader than that. So the overarching purpose of God's discipline of us, of all of our suffering and trials, is not merely punishment of wrongdoing. We operate like this so easily where we think if we have some suffering, we think, oh, what did I do wrong? That's deadly. <laughs> You're not going to see God as loving you. You're going to call his love into question if you have that view. Okay, so just, just step back for one second and make sure this is, this is just utterly clear. If you are a believer in Jesus... There is nothing left but love. On the cross, Jesus took all of your punishment. He drank that cup to the dregs, set it down and said, it is finished. There is no punishment as an end in itself left for us. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing left but love. So every bit of pain and suffering and trial that we go through is restorative. It's purposeful. 
So we can't think, I mean, even if he does punish us, because of course there are consequences to our sin, but even if he does punish us, it's not because he gets some sick pleasure out of zapping us when we step out of line. It's because he wants, it's for our good. He wants us to share in his holiness. He wants to make us like Jesus. So he's absolutely and utterly committed. Like a good farmer, like a good parent, he is the ultimate parent. Okay? So we can't forget this loving, encouraging exhortation. God actually shows us the greatness of his love in the very act of discipline. It's a sign that he loves us. It's evidence of his fatherly care. This is so encouraging. This is the reason, one of the reasons why we shouldn't lose heart and grow weary. It's one of the reasons we can endure. We can run the race with endurance because the Lord disciplines not the ones he hates and can barely put up with and is so annoyed by because they're so slow to learn and so quick to wander. No, he disciplines those he loves. You know what's really dangerous? Is if he just let you play in the street, he lets you do whatever you wanted, and he never called you in and never disciplined you. And he never instructed you and never trained you and left you out like an illegitimate child. That would be horrible. But he loves us too much for that. So this is reason why we should not lose heart in the very act of discipline because the Lord is saying, in our pain, I love you. I've got purposes for this. And if that is still hard to accept, consider the one who says it. Fix your eyes on Jesus again. Listen to this. Hebrews says it twice, and then it's really cool how it comes up in Isaiah as well. Listen to this. Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Listen to this. Although he was a son, a perfectly beloved son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Or back in Hebrews 2, we see Jesus, because of the suffering of his death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Talk about a pioneer. <laughs> he's not telling us something he's unwilling to endure. No, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And, and obviously none of it was punishment because he was without sin. But he endured all of the suffering, all of the hardship for us. He learned obedience. He was perfected through sufferings. And if we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, do you think that there's some hardness on that path to sharing his holiness? There is. But don't think that that calls the love of God into question. No, it's evidence of the love of God because he disciplines those he loves. Now, listen to this. That, that word for discipline, paideia in Greek, which encompasses training, correction, instruction, and discipline, punishment, okay? Isaiah 53, same word. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So he endured the discipline. Actually, the the punishment that we couldn't handle, that we do deserve, so that the only kind of discipline that would be left is loving discipline that's restorative. With his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53. Or think about this, the Gospels, early on in the Gospels. Is this part of your worldview? Is this part of the, where the, you know, the mental furniture, does this make sense? A voice came out of heaven's memory. Remember, Jesus was baptized, Mark 1. A voice came out of the heaven saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness and be tempted by Satan. I love you. Go suffer. We need to be able to pull those two things together. Otherwise, we're going to grow weary and lose heart because we're going to call the love of God into question rather than see his love in the hard trials and suffering and in the challenges. Does that make sense? So God, our Father, disciplines those he loves. He did it with his own perfect son. And if we are to be conformed to the image of his son, we should expect the same thing. So, I mean, you can tease this out with lots of examples. Sometimes we need to think of these examples because it just doesn't feel this way to us, just like it doesn't to the, the cornstalk or the soil. Imagine a track coach that never pushed or disciplined his team, never put them through their paces, never put them through pain. Wouldn't be good. Imagine a parent that never exhorted or disciplined his child. No resistance on the path to becoming a spoiled brat or a lazy, you know, selfish, entitlement-filled person. Okay, that's not love. Coddling softness is not love, especially when there's war and enemies and a race that is long and hard. And sometimes we fear, we cringe at his discipline. But again, what's really scary is if we would be left without discipline. So, children don't like discipline. Feels like the opposite of love oftentimes but God refuses to leave us to ourselves. He loves us too much to ignore us. He is attentive to us and is vigilant in his commitment to train and discipline and raise us. Okay, so here, just a brief word to fathers on this Father's Day. It applies to mothers as well and any of us who are seeking to influence and raise the next generation. I'm going to acknowledge a debt just up front to a couple messages I listened to recently by Doug Wilson. Um, he was at a pastor's conference on biblical manhood, and it was, it was a couple really good messages that he, that he gave. And he was talking about how God is the perfection of strictness or firmness and mercy. We tend to fall off on the one horse or the other. One, one, the strictness is hard for, or, or is easy for some fathers, very natural, and the mercy and the tenderness is really hard. For other fathers, the tenor, tenderness and mercy is really easy, and the strictness is really hard, and mothers as well. But God our Father is perfect in this. So he warns Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They eat. He didn't come down and say, this is a point Doug Wilson made, Adam, I'm going to count to three. You better put that fruit down. 
or we'll give you another shot. In fact, he said, Wilson, in fact, he says this. He says, some parents think they're teaching mercy, and really they're only teaching fractions. Two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths, okay? So, fathers, we've got to keep our eyes peeled and fixed on Jesus, the perfect man, perfect balance of toughness and tenderness, on God our Father to to be shaped and molded into His image so that we know how to do this thing where there's appropriate justice and standards and lines and all of that in the disciplinary process that's loving and mercy and tenderness and love and graciousness. It's all love. Sometimes it's hard to know what that looks like. And here is a huge place where we as fathers ought to open our eyes and sit up and take notice and observe how he fathers us so that we can in turn father our children well. So anywhere the Bible talks about the fatherhood of God, we need to sit up, take serious notice, first as sons, because that's what we are first, sons of the heavenly father, and then as reflectors of his fatherhood to our children. Okay, so with all that in mind regarding the love of God in our sufferings, the purposes of God in our sufferings, Look where he goes next, 12 to 15. This applicational, therefore, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb, which is lame, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men. Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Run! See to it that no one comes short. Run! of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many will be defiled. So do you see how, how this follows, this exhortation follows so clearly on the heels of what we've just considered about the fatherhood of God and, the, and His loving purposes in our pain? Okay, so if we see the love, the purposes of God in our suffering, rather than growing weary and losing heart, what happens? Shoulders drooping, hands hanging down, weak knees. No, if we realize he loves me, there's purpose in this, then you can say, okay, I'm going to get back on the path and run. Okay, so hardship doesn't have to be a, a punch in the spiritual solar plexus, although sometimes it is for a period, okay, understandable, all of us, but rather it's a big bear hug from our Heavenly Father him pulling us close so that he can whisper in our ear, I love you this much. Trust me. So whether it's because he's trying to wrestle something away from you that you won't give up. He's pulling you in tight and he's saying, I love you this much. Let it go. Maybe it's something where he needs to kick up some of the sediment that's in your soul that you don't even realize is there. And so there's hardship and trial, and it comes to the surface because he wants to skim it off so that you can share in his holiness. That's a good thing. Or maybe he's planning, and maybe it's all these things, he's planning to recycle that grace. In your affliction, he's going to comfort you, and then you're going to be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. He loves us enough to do whatever it takes to make us like his son. So this is a radical change of mind. It's a change of heart that we need. If we don't see our hardship and pain and suffering this way, then the Christian life will seem like a defeated, 
frustrated process so often. We'll get so discouraged that we won't want to share it with anyone. We wouldn't want to burden them with it. Have you ever felt that way? Or you could end up with this twisted Job's friends theology that's going to drive you crazy as you try to read the liver of your circumstances. Ooh, hard things? What did I do wrong? Ooh, good things? Oh, I must have done something right. That's got to be disconnected. So, if we really believe this, God is treating us like his own beloved child. We won't grow weary and lose heart. Instead, we're going to strengthen our hands. The knees that are feeble make straight paths for our feet. The limb, the limb that's lame is not going to be put on a joint. It's going to be strengthened and healed. Okay? That text that Greg read in Isaiah 35, I changed it on him in the last minute. Um, that's where this language comes from. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense, God will come, but he will save you. The Hebrews needed to hear it, and that's why they needed the example of folks like Abraham and Moses, who even though they didn't receive the fullness of the promises, they knew that that city with foundations was coming, and they hung in there and endured. And you know what? A lot of this world's going to feel like a, a wilderness, but one day Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to fully rescue us. We have been rescued but we still go through the wilderness that is this world, and he's going to come back and bring the fullness of Isaiah 35 um, to us. So, as one commentator said, don't shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. No, make sure you find healing because God is at work. Another word for fathers here. In this strengthen the hands, strengthen the knees, Fatherhood is a burden-bearing business, okay? Fathers, you, you were given shoulders to bear burdens. You need strong arms, strong legs. You can't do that in your own strength, okay? And if our men here at Bethel grow weary and lose heart easily, we're not going to make good fathers. And where the men are spiritually lazy and droopy, it does not bode well for families and churches, but when, and, and, and again, when, when men in the church have narrow shoulders, weak knees, drooping arms, because they're running after something else, because they're not laying aside the sins and the weights, the church is going to be very weak. So fatherhood is this burden-bearing business, at least it ought to be. It's not a rights-exercising business. It's not an authority-wielding business. No, these are burdens that we bear gladly, sacrificially for the good of our family. So we need to learn how to bear those burdens in a way that's not burdensome for the joy set before us, just like Jesus. So how do you run the race that's set before you with, with these burdens? And how do we do it with endurance and without growing weary? Well, we realize these very truths that how we handle and respond to the paideia, the instruction and discipline of the Lord in our personal lives is going to dictate how well we will love our sons and daughters as we seek to raise them in the paideia, instruction, training, 
of the Lord. So just as God in Christ will teach and train us fathers to run, so God will teach us how to father so that we can help our children to run the race that's set before them. So yes to fathers, but also to mothers and also to any who are seeking to raise up the next generation to run this race that's set before them. Okay, some quick final thoughts on this series, just some diagnostics. How do we do this? How do we know? We talked about resting and running. We need to learn how to do both well, like Christians. We need to learn how to rest in Christ. We need to run, learn how to run on Christ. We've got to heed the words, come to me, all your weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And we need to heed the words of Hebrews, lay aside the weights and sins if you're going to run and not grow weary. So there's tension here. How do we know when faith striving ends, where that ends, and where flesh striving begins? How do we know where waiting on the Lord ends and passivity begins? How do we know when we're resting in the flesh and when we're resting in Christ? How do we know when we're running in the flesh or when we're running in Christ, on Christ? There's some practical tension here. So just a few pieces of advice, some diagnostics to, to know how we're running or how we're resting at any given time. First point, soak in both truths. Okay, maybe especially the one that's least, quote-unquote, natural <laughs> for you. So maybe the more passive people need to, be, to make sure that they do run. They don't coast and justify it on the basis of their personality. Well, I'm just not type A. No, this isn't a personality issue. This is a grace issue. And then the active people need to be sure that they're running the right race in the right strength with their eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't run the wrong race and kind of hide your insecurity and guilt behind the guise of busyness and activity, even for Jesus. Second thing, see how these things interrelate. They're not just two parallel poles that never meet, okay? They, the running flows out of the resting, just like work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work, not and God's at work, and we'll never know how they fit together. No, you can work out because he is at work. So how do you know you're running on God? out of that place of rest in Christ? Well, at least I think it's probably easy to know when you're not. Think about these few thoughts here. Are you getting resentful, frustrated, angry, jealous? Let's say you're running, doing a lot. When you start to see that resentment, that frustration, that anger, jealousy, oh, must be nice, creep up, you know you're not resting in Christ. Your running is from a different place. Or, on the other hand, what can happen when we're running and we're not running on Christ, running in His grace? We start to get silently prideful and smug about our pace and our productivity. Oh, look at how fast I'm running. Look at how slow they're running. If you're running hard and not restfully running on Christ, you're either going to feel like it's not worth it and it's a raw deal, and you're going to get jealous and critical and angry of those who are not running like you, or you're going to feel pretty good about your speed and your endurance and look around at all those weekend joggers out there spiritually, and you're going to feel superior to them because they can't keep your pace or endure as long without rest, and you'll get critical again 
And maybe if you have to deal with enough of those slackers, you'll get angry and annoyed. Either way, you're running on empty. And have you ever heard that phrase, too busy not to pray? Sometimes we operate as if, well, I'm too busy to stop for gas when, when I'm running on empty. Hello? Like, that's not going to get you very far. And sometimes it's, it's this martyr thing. Oh, I don't have time to drink at the fountain because I'm doing so much for God. So you really want that kind of service? Does he really need you that much? Are you going, going, going and neglecting to feed your soul on the Word and neglecting dependence on God in prayer and communion with Him? If you are saying, I don't have time, you are definitely not running on God. In fact, you've already given way to the drift. If you are saying, I don't have time to stop for food and gas, i got to keep driving. (laughs) Like, and your tank's empty? You've already drifted. Stop, pull over, come to me, all you're weary and heavy and laden, and I will give you rest. And then your running will be different. It will be empowered. You won't need to draw attention to yourself and all your running. No. Draw attention to the one who's giving you the strength to run. Another diagnostic test regarding the nature of rest, the nature of running. The rest that your flesh wants is selfish. How do I know if this is the right kind of rest? Well, what our flesh wants is the comfort zone. We want the path of least resistance. We want the ignore or avoid the problems path of rest. It's not the rest so that I may run rest. It's the me time, save my life rest. Okay? It's my life is my own, not God, God's, and others rest. Now here I'm going to speak very specifically to us. It's the kind of rest impulse that says early on Sunday morning, or on Sunday afternoon before home group. It's been a long week. I don't really feel like going. I need rest. And then you camp out in front of the TV. Is that really going to help you? Am I demonizing all television watching? Uh, Almost. No, not really. Um, But does that really give you rest? I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm trying to be practical, like really practical on a weekly basis. Do you know how much you need to fight your flesh in this life? Do you know that I always don't want to go to home group on a Sunday night? (gasps) Okay? I know you feel that way. But that doesn't mean you always just go with how you feel, cornstalk, soil. Come on. We need grace for real rest. Yes, of course, we all have limits, blah, 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 blah. Okay, all those qualifications. I'm just saying we need to think about these things. The rest our flesh wants is selfish. The rest your soul needs is vertical, and when you get it, it sends you out in love to God and others running. There is a rest that can be tiring, just like there is a running that can be invigorating. If we're cranky, irritable, joyless when we're running, working, serving, then we're not resting in Christ and running on Christ. Okay? Now, on the other hand, the running that our flesh does is self-serving. So selfish rest as opposed to, like, I want God rest and running on God rest. And then the running, how do I know if this is the right kind of running or not? Well, the flesh running is self-serving. It's running for my glory running. It's running for my kingdom running. What are your motives? Wrestle through those things. And then let me just close with this. You know, there's like this uh, 
proverb, this like ecclesiastical proverb of the 80-20 rule. Have you ever heard this? In the church, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Okay, maybe that's true. Oftentimes that can be true in churches. I don't think that's true here, okay? Um, I don't think it's 100%, 100%, or whatever the ideal would be. Um, but let's just rebel against anything that would smack of that here, okay? Let's just refuse the 80-20 rule, okay, as a church. Not because we are all really just tough, committed people, but because we're all people who are coming to Jesus and being empowered by Jesus to run the race that's set before us with endurance. So no easy chairs. Like this is a, it's not a spectator sport, okay? This is participation. Running is a good thing. The Christian life is a race. It's a marathon. It's long and hard. And so we should expect effort. We should expect striving. We should expect pain and running cramps. What do you do with a cramp? Run through it. Sometimes. Sometimes you need to stop. You need wisdom to know the difference, okay? But, the, like, wrestle with these things. Don't just immediately, oh, I've got to pay, I've got to stop now. No. Give it another, like, two minutes, and you're, like, good for another 25 minutes. We should expect sore muscles. You, you should expect that you're going to want to quit. Okay, so let's rebel against the 80-20 rule. If you're doing very little or nothing in the church, maybe it's because you don't know what to do. Okay, talk to me. Talk to one of the, you know, your home group leader or, or whatever. We can give you some ideas. But maybe it's because you're running after something else. Maybe that's why you're not doing anything. Something else is getting your run. The more grace we're drawing down, the more joyfully we will be doing all that we are doing. So 1 Corinthians 10, 15 is not weird and freakish. I worked harder than all of them. Not I, but the grace of God that was in me. The more grace you're drawing down, he was busy. And he was not like, look at how busy I am. You know, everybody look, everybody look. No, it's not I, it's the grace of God that's at work in me. 1 Corinthians 9, it's healthy. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run? Run that you may obtain it. I mean, good grief, if, they're gonna, if the Olympians are going to go after a perishable wreath like that, we ought to go after the crown of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 12, 15 is not crazy and weird. Well, it is crazy and weird, but it's wonderful. Paul's saying, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your sake. He doesn't say, oh, I'll put up with you another day, you know, or, you know, drawing attention to all of his sacrifice. No, most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. So let's not think that God doesn't want to push us, to stretch us out of our comfort zone, to increase our capacity, okay? Yes, 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 of course, we all have limits. Yes, the law of diminishing returns is true. And we're all not the same, so we can't expect the same of others or be intimidated or guilt-ridden if we can't keep pace with somebody else, okay? But all of us need to run to Jesus. And all of us need to run on Jesus. Okay, so Jesus did the work we couldn't do so that he could give the rest that we most need. Spiritual rest, reconciliation with God, peace with God because of our guilt and our sin. 
And Jesus gives the rest we most need so that we can do the work that he calls us to do. That's not a bad word. It's a good thing. We're made to work in such a way that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So let's rest in Christ, Bethel. Let's learn to rest in Christ so that we can run with Christ, with endurance, the race that's set before us all the way to the finish line. Amen? Let's pray. Now to you who are able, powerful, mighty to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy to you, God. You are our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and so to you, be the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed and encourage you all to join us there in the lobby to send the, the Lewises off. So we love you guys and we're going to miss you and we're going to be praying for you as you run the race that's set before you. Amen. Dismissed.